Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, where we have been for some time as we look closely at these precious words in the 8th chapter, a favorite chapter of many of you, and today we come to maybe a favorite verse of many of you, the 28th verse of Romans 8. God's precious word reads in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. There are some limitations in the text, but there is a wonderful promise in the text for those that are God's called and chosen elect and who love the Lord their God. A wonderful axiom of comfort and security in the various afflictions and trials of life. Without severe persecution and tribulations, it's hard for us to fully appreciate the text. But we need to try to do so by having the mindset of a martyr, or the mindset of our brother Paul, who ended up being a martyr, as far as we know, so that we can appreciate what the apostle was conveying to saints in the capital of the pagan Roman Empire, who were looked down upon for being Christians or Jews or both by the rulers of that time and by the citizens of that city. The passage tells us about their sufferings, and we need to try to keep that in mind. You don't really have any in your life. The little ones that we do have should easily be overcome by the text if we're loving the Lord God our Father. I don't want to give Romans 8.28 to someone who isn't loving God this morning because it, it really isn't for you. Because if you have let the love of God slip in your heart, He isn't working all things together for your good. He will bring about your eventual glorification, and He may bring about your sooner-than-that conviction. But He's going to be chastening you and punishing you in the meantime. And while chastening has its ultimate end of good, it doesn't have a good middle. It's a painful middle. And that painful middle can go all the way to death before your time, as it did the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, who were abusing the Lord's Supper. And the Lord took them. He said He took many were sleeping early, proof that they weren't going to be condemned with the world. It was actually an evidence of eternal life. But that is not the good that we're referring to in Romans 8.28. And I hope to make that distinction clearer as we go forward. By appreciation and remembrance of this verse, you can be faithful and fearless in any set of circumstances. And we should be. But you need to meet the condition of the text, and that's to be one of God's elect, chosen and called of Him, and loving Him as your Heavenly Father. But what a wonderful rule to live by. I just fear that it's often quoted, memorized, bandied about, put on stickers, put on keychains, bumper stickers, plaques on walls without fully appreciating all that's in it. Most of those that I have heard bandied about were Arminians who don't even understand the second half of the verse. (laughs) They, They all want things to work together for good for them, but they're not sure what the second half of the verse means, and it's usually not quoted. The words that are quoted are usually, well, we know that all things work together for good while they're in sin, you know, or something like that without understanding that it's limited to a specific 
group of people identified in the second half of the verse, which are then described in much greater detail in the next 12 verses. Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Let's take the verse apart, word by word, that the Holy Spirit has given us. That first word is not to be ignored, because the word and is there as a coordinating conjunction tying in what has gone before with what's in this verse. And is adding to what has just come before. It's a transitional verse. Because we are transitioning right now from verses 15 through 27 about suffering to salvation. And 828 is right in the middle of that. And it's a transitional verse. The first half is referring to our sufferings. And the last half is referring to our salvation. Because what went before the verse is sufferings. And what follows after is salvation. And as you were taught, hopefully you were taught, that when you're writing paragraphs, you should have a transitional sentence, leaving one thought and moving into another. So is Romans 8.28. Because it's leaving suffering and moving toward salvation. The and is an important conjunction. Because the apostle has already given us two things to help us in the face of suffering. He has given us the hope of an enormous, nearly unbelievable change that is going to take place in the whole universe and with us when we will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Our bodies fully redeemed and glorified, the heavens and the earth changed, and we studied that over the past couple months. That's particularly in verses 19 through 23. That's hope. Because notice what it says in verse 24. For we are saved by hope. So see, there's a salvation and a blessing and a comfort and a security in the hope we have of the big changes that are coming. Then, the second thing we have is the Holy Spirit in verses 26 and 27 that also, see it's a second thing, also, likewise, also, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities by praying for us and enhancing our praying so that our prayers are according to the will of God and they are communicated to God in a powerful way. And we studied that. So those two things are there and we have verse 28 opening with the word and. We are saved by hope. The Holy Spirit also helps our infirmities and we know that all these things that are happening to us that trouble us, try us, stress us, and afflict us work together for good because there is a master behind them all. There is a master puppeteer. There is a master chess player who is moving all the little pieces in our lives to accomplish His glory and our good. So there's three things to help us with suffering. Because this Romans chapter 8 began with describing suffering in verse 17. It said, If so be that we suffer with Him that we may be also glorified together. Then it said in verse 18, For I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We went over those verses carefully, word by word. What they're teaching is that there was suffering in the lives of the Roman saints 
There's a little bit in our lives, not like their lives. And it's in the face of that that the Apostle wants to give us hope, Holy Spirit intercession for our praying, and verse 28, that all these things are going to work together for good if we love God because we're God's called sons and daughters. And everything that He is doing in our lives is for His glory, our profit, eventual good, and glory ourselves in heaven. And so we want to see that suffering. If we go beyond verse 28 and look even further, we see more suffering. Now we had it in verses 17 and 18. I just showed it to you. We have this groaning and travail that the whole creation has because of our corrupt bodies. And we described that. The Lord's going to change it all. And the creation in verse 19 is inanimate matter and irrational creatures, animals and stuff. It's not angels and it's not men. And the Lord's going to change it all. But as we progress past that groaning and travail, we come to say, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? Well, now there's a verse in our context following verse 28 that lists serious infirmities and afflictions, things you don't deal with on a daily basis. You're troubled because when you finished praying over your lunch at work, you looked up and somebody had less than a respectful look on their face towards you? Is that your persecution? Was there a sword involved? And I'm I'm only mocking you a little because I need you to understand that this verse is for people who really suffer. And if this verse can help people who really suffer, then we ought to have a bedrock under our feet so that we are never moved. Because we have not yet faced things like that. You haven't been in a famine. You don't even know what a famine is. You've never been naked except by choice to be immodest before God. We have more clothes than anybody could ever want in our walk-in closets. So I want you to see the troubles that are here in the context. And verses 38 and 39 list other things like death and life and angels and principalities. And so when we look at 28, we always want to see a verse in its context. What is Romans 8.28 actually telling us? How is it comforting us? What are the all things in the text? And the all things are primarily the acts of God of allowing affliction and suffering, which are described in verses 17 and 18, and later in the chapter in verse 35 that I just read to you. You cannot go to Romans 8.28 and cover yourself when you're sinning. Romans 8.28 isn't for you when you're sinning. Even though God is able, and He does, overrule all wickedness to His glory, in the affairs of men, Romans 8.28 isn't for that. And I don't want you to be foolish believers by bandying about the words, all things work together for good, when you ought to be on your knees confessing your sins to God and begging Him not to bring the evil into your life that you so deserve. I want us to appreciate this text for what it truly gives us and not take it beyond what the Spirit intended for us. 
Though God is able to bring good out of evil, and you read about it last night in Genesis chapter 45, that isn't what the text here is for. The text here is for sufferings in this life and how you can have a foundation under you that the things that God is allowing to happen to you when your sins are confessed and you're loving Him and you know that you're His, they're all working together for good. And they they work together for good in various ways, which I hope we can see. And is an important conjunction for you to see there is hope that helps us against suffering. There is the Holy Spirit that also helpeth our infirmities. And there is the knowledge that God is arranging and working and coordinating all the events in our lives for our good. Because we're His children. And He's always looking out for us. You know, when earthly parents send their children off to school or off to a job... As soon as they are in the vehicle, the bus, or their own car, and down the driveway, they're kind of out of the parents' control and influence. But when the Lord sends us into this world as His children, He's in complete knowledge and awareness of what's happening to us, and in complete control of those circumstances. It's very different. And He's able to coordinate them all for our profit. The bully on the school bus is under the Lord's control as much as anyone else. Your parents may never know about the bully on the school bus. And even if they did, there's very little they can do to help. If they try to help, they're only going to make your situation worse. But the Lord's able to take care of all that. And when you get the flu that the bully makes fun of on the school bus, that is late for your first class, and you get in trouble with the teacher, and all the different circumstances, the Lord is able to arrange them and coordinate them. I love thinking of a chessboard that doesn't have the few pieces that you play with. Do you know why you play with just a few pieces? It's still more than the mind can handle, isn't it? Right. Well, at least mine. I don't even want to look at my brother, because he'll be grinning at me right now. There's only a few pieces on a chessboard, but the Lord has 6.8 billion pieces on his chessboard But when I say 6.8 billion, we're not counting the innumerable company of angels, good and evil. And we are not counting all the other factors that are countless billions that influence each one of them. The permutations and combinations of effects and causes and causes and effects and related interaction of all these pieces is incomprehensible. But he governs every single one of them so that he can say, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Oh, no. You've got to be kidding. 6.8 billion people and you've got to remember the number of hairs on every head? How many sparrows are there in the world? Not one can get to the ground without your heavenly Father. The The lilies of the field, how do they wear such beautiful clothing? Because your Father takes care for them. Every living creature seeks its meat from God. And on and on we could go describing our benevolent Father. But He's only a benevolent Father for those who love Him and those who are the called according to His purpose. We witnessed an event in the last 48 hours in our world that is now what we would call benevolence. And while God gets good out of it, it's good at the expense of the objects of it. When God gets good out of us, it's out of the profit He works in our lives. 
I'm speaking of an earthquake off the coast of Japan and a tsunami that devastated northern Japan, that they're still trying to figure out how much damage has been done. And it was just a tiny little earthquake and just a tiny little wave. As I watched some videos with my wife of the destruction, I just wanted to keep saying to her, can you imagine the flood? We are only talking about a few feet of water. Can you imagine the flood? Then I wanted to take her to the CIA fact book and show her the religion of Japan. How many Christians there were living next to that ocean on that piece of rock. The CIA gives Japan 2% Christian. But you know what CIA calls Christian, don't you? Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists. Orthodox, Catholic, Lutheran. It's a pagan nation. Shintoism and Buddhism. This verse isn't for them. This verse is for those who love God and those who are the called according to His purpose. You may call me prejudiced, meaning I've made a prejudgment. You bet I have. I've made a prejudgment based on God's Word because this verse has the prejudgment. It's for them that love God and those who are the called according to His purpose. Let them go to their little shrines and ask their ancestors why the tsunami hit. We can go to our God and know that He wants all men to know that they are but men. And no matter how well they build some of their things, just a few feet of water can shake them. Right now there's six nuclear reactors in Japan in trouble. Six. They generally build the foundations and the buildings around nuclear reactors quite well. But just a few feet of water. It was only a few feet. You say, well, it was a 30-foot wave. Yeah, that was a 30-foot wave out there. You saw the pictures. It was only a few feet. The power of our God. Right. But he's, he's overseeing all those events. Now, there were countless millions of interacting events in that nation and the rest of the world because of that news event. Right. He's in charge of it all. Praise right. His glorious name. Amen. And is connecting three things for you to be able to handle suffering in your life of which you have very little. But the very little that you do have, you should be able to grab this verse and say, I'm never going to be moved. I'm never going to worry again. I'm just going to love God, my Father, know that I am called to be one of His children, and know that everything in my life is being coordinated by Him for my good. Now, that doesn't mean that we get slothful and hope that He'll be diligent for us. That doesn't mean that we get foolish and hope that He'll be wise for us. That doesn't mean that we hate our spouse and hope that He'll put love into our marriage. That isn't what the verse is for. The verse is for you... To be diligent, wise, and loving. Because that's part of loving God your Father. He that loveth God shall love his brother also and keep God's commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Then things work together for good. I have seen it in my life. Have you seen it in your life? That strange turns of events bless you and take care of you and provide for you. I bless and praise His holy name. Amen. And I thank Him for this text. We, the second word in the verse limits it 
to the Apostle Paul, the elect saints to which he wrote unto us, who are in the place of those elect saints to which he wrote. He's already said of them that they are the beloved of God. God loves them in chapter 1 and verse 7, when he said to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. There's a, there's a love and there's a call. Our call is our choice, is God's choice, excuse me. Our call, when we are called, is God's choice, God's charge, God's ordination, God's appointment to us to be, for us to be His sons and daughters. And there they were. And His saints. The sanctified ones on earth that are His children. As the apostle then elaborated on as he worked from chapter 1 to chapter 8. But it's limited. We have heard the joyful sound. And the joyful sound of the gospel includes verses like this for us. The Bible is not a book to be printed and put in every home. The Bible is for God's elect. God's elect hear it, receive it, rejoice in it. The rest of the world mocks it, scorns it, burns it, and hates it because it condemns their lifestyle. The Bible was not written to the world. The Bible was written to believers, and it was transferred from one believer to another believer. The Apostle Paul, in his evangelistic efforts, limited himself to those places where there were men reading the Old Testament. Acts chapter 17 tells us that. When the Apostle John would write, when an an audience is actually identified, if it's Luke writing Acts to Theophilus, it's to convince Theophilus of the certainty of the things that Luke had told him and that he had heard about Jesus of Nazareth. If it's Rome, it's to the saints that were in Rome. It wasn't written to the Romans. Now it's you say, but it says Romans 8 at the top of my page. Yes, the believers in Rome. John said, these things that I've written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. 1 John 5.13 We, it's a special privilege to have had beautiful feet bring the glad tidings of this text to us so that we can know when things are happening around us, they're under the control of God, and not just barely under His control, but He is working those things together in a coordinated fashion for our good. Right. Let it never come out of our hearts, minds, or lips when something bad happens to us in our life, to blame God for it. You may know of people who blame God for the loss of a child, and that would be a serious loss. You may know people that blame God for the loss of a spouse, and that would be a terrible loss. But don't you blame God. Blame yourself. The only reason evil happens in the world is because of our sins. If we hadn't sinned, we'd be living in paradise till this day. And we'd be eating from the tree of life. The tree of life was not off limits to Adam and Eve until after they ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We corrupted this place. Don't you blame God. But we hear the, the good news and the explanation that things are working together for our good. We never want to forget that. We want to keep that before our eyes. Now, the apostle had already explained to them that they were the beloved of God. Look at, look back just a couple pages to chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. He, he said they were, were the beloved of God in 1-7, and 
And he says it here in 5.5. Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit according to that text? It, he sheds abroad God's love for us in our hearts. He sheds it abroad. It's a light that fills every nook and cranny of your heart if you're walking with Him. And the, the context that comes up to this verse, Romans 5, 1-4, through 4, describes rejoicing in tribulation. Because you know God's in charge of it. And if you approach life by trusting Him, believing on Him, and submitting to His tribulations that are His acts in your life, not yours, if you've sinned, confess it and change. He will shed abroad the love of God in your hearts. He will go inside your heart and get all of its corners. He will shed it abroad that God loves you. But it's only for those walking in the Spirit because it's a witness of the Spirit of God. And if we've grieved or quenched the Holy Spirit, then that light is dimmed in our heart. And we don't have that confidence that God loves us and everything is working together for our good. Back to Romans 8. If we love Him, as this text states, it's, we know it's by God's prior love of us, because that's what 1 John 4.19 tells us. We love Him because, here's the reason and the explanation, He first loved us. The wicked never even think of God until He changes them. Psalm 10.4 says, God is not in all their thoughts. doesn't even cross their mind. They can look at the creation and get the idea that they ought to worship a grasshopper. They can look at the creation and totally miss a creator God with eternal power and Godhead. God is not in all their thoughts. We are different than that, and so the text is for us, and it's not for them. And brethren, it says, and we know. Do you know this? I am so worked up right now about the possibility of going to the other side of the earth in a few months, as I've explained to you, and preaching about the revelation of God in the Bible and the gospel to us. Amen. Every, almost everything we believe is tumbling around in my head underneath this umbrella of the hidden wisdom of God's mysteries. Because the things that are in this book, like this verse, tell us that the events that happen in a believer's life are under the careful coordination and government of God and are working together for His good, for our good, for His good, the, the person that has these events in his life. But that third word of our verse is, and we know. That is a wonderful thing. We would not know without God's revelation. We would not know anything without God's revelation. We should know that He has eternal power in Godhead by looking at the creation. But all the things that are contained between these covers is a blessing of God. And it's an enormous blessing. And we have had that word, know, over and over in some of these chapters. Know ye not? Know ye not? As the Apostle would ask. Because there are things that we're supposed to know and be established on. And we know is our introduction into this text. That the sufferings that we experience are covered by hope of a change in the future, are covered by the Holy Spirit helping us with our praying, and third, 
that all those things are working together for good. God's good, our good, our natural good, spiritual good, and eternal good. All of it. And so we want to know it, and we don't want to forget it, and we do not want to use this verse incorrectly, but we certainly want to use it correctly. There's things that we should know. Paul said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He had committed his soul to safekeeping to a faithful creator. He had committed his soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was persuaded that Jesus Christ would be able to keep it safe. Even in the great day of judgment, it would be kept safe. Are you persuaded? Are you persuaded of this text that tells us all things work together for good? The all things. Now, we've already seen the context. I want, to sh- I want to remind you, three things. Verse 17 tells us suffering. Verses 17 and 18 describe suffering. Verse 23 describes groaning within ourselves, waiting for an adoption of our corrupting bodies. Verse 35 describes, and verse 36 describes tribulation, distress, and persecutions in this life. That is the primary definition of the all things. Don't run into Romans 8.28 and say, I got it. I've been sinning away, but it's all going to turn out for good. Because that's not what Romans 8.28 is for. You run into Romans 8.28 and look at verses 17 and 18, verse 23 and verse 36, and find out that the all things are primarily the sufferings that Christians have to deal with. And we're told that because of the word and. Hope saves us from those things. Hope of glory that's coming. The Holy Spirit helps those infirmities. Third, and we know. We have this bedrock for our faith that God is going to work everything out. But that those everything or that all things that are in this text is the sufferings, the trials, the infirmities, the weaknesses, the tribulations, the distresses, the perils, the persecutions that we end up in primarily. But there's another thing. The next verse begins with what word? For. And it's describing God's purpose in our lives. And it it goes through foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. So there is an element that part of the things that are working together for our good are eternal in nature and involve our salvation. Because that's there in the context as well. And if God be for us, who shall be against us? What shall we say then to these things? See, there's things listed in verses 29 and 30, and they're working together for our good because everyone God has foreknown, He has predestinated, and those He's predestinated, He's called, He's justified, and as far as God's concerned, He's glorified them because their glorification is certain. It is definite. What shall we then say to these things? So there's, there's those things there as well, and we want to see them both. And see, with those things, suffering... And salvation all work together for good. Sin, slothfulness, rebellion on your part is not part of the all things. It's not in the context. Don't stick it in there. I'm through with that point. Forgive me if I go back to it. I'm just sick and tired of people banding it about like a little piece of, like a candy cane that they want to lick on while they live carnally as God's enemies by befriending this world. If you are befriending this world, you are the enemy of God, and the text doesn't apply to you. 
He is not carefully coordinating every event in your life for your good. He's going to bring down pounding justice on you. And some of his words that he uses are calamity. We'll get to in the second service. Damnation. Don't try to tell me damnation equals good. They're kind of different. We resist the authority that God put in this world. We will receive to ourselves damnation. If we abuse the Lord's Supper, we will eat and bring upon ourselves damnation. Right. Okay. The all things. All the suffering that those poor Christians had to go through worked for their good. What sinful things? You know, you can, you can look at sin, Genesis 45. Did it have a sin that turned to good? Yeah, it turned to good in the long run, but what did it do in the meantime? Did it turn to Jacob's good for the 14 or 15, 16 years that Joseph was gone? That Joseph was alone in Egypt? That Joseph was in prison? It, it ended up in the eventual deliverance of their family from a terrible famine in the land of Canaan. But there was a lot of bad because of that sin. Right. You say, well, you look at David's sin and you say, hmm, David sinned in adultery and murder, and he got Solomon out of Bathsheba. Now, whenever we bring up that point, we're looking at the fact that God is able to bring good out of evil right. when there's repentance. When there's repentance. But do you know what David had to go through to get Solomon out of Bathsheba? I'll tell you he would ask the Lord to give him another way of getting Solomon. Because he, he went through a hell on earth because of the guilt in his soul. Read Psalm 51. Right. He went through a hell on earth. Read about what Absalom, his other son, did to him. Read about Amnon and Tamar. Read about all the trouble among his children because of his horrible example that he had set. And he also had the death of the first child by Bathsheba. Many sinners come to know. And see, I want to to push this text as far as we can, but it can't be used as an excuse for our sins. All we can do is when we have repented from our sins and we find ourselves better off, humbled, corrected, instructed, and more zealous for the things of heaven, we can look back and see God's hand, but we still hate the sin. And it doesn't excuse it or cover it at all. The Bible would say in Luke 7, those that are forgiven much, love much. So we can see a product of good coming out of sin, but we don't sin to get that kind of good. They work together for good. You know, when you read the words that all things work together, these things that can happen to you in life, persecution, infirmities, physical sickness, you know, if you are living a life of walking with God, and you end up being sick, or you lose your job, or you lose a loved one, and things like that, or we're persecuted. See, I can hardly use that for us, because we're we're just not persecuted. Like these people were. What peril are you in? Except the perilous times of the last days, which is carnal Christianity, we trust God in these matters. And we see by the words that they work together for good to them that love God. So, 
while we have hope that eventually I'm going to be free from this corrupt body that is dying before my very eyes and from these relationships that are so disappointing because they're all with sinners so that I have hope things are going to be better from verse 24. And the Holy Spirit is helping my infirmities by communicating to God according to His will. In all seriousness, the burden that I'm groaning under, I also have the confidence that these things that are happening to me are for my good. And we want to think about that. And he's able to work them together. The coordinating power of God is unbelievable. And I've already mentioned the billions and billions of combinations and permutations of interrelating effects and factors. We should just rejoice in him and use this text never to be moved by our circumstances, but to love him and to trust our Heavenly Father for things temporal, that are working together for our good, and things eternal that will result in our glorification. But not only do they work together, they work together for good. And that is wonderful. Joseph's brethren sinned heinously in selling him into slavery. We don't read any sin on Esther's part being sold into slavery and into a marriage to a man that she didn't choose. The emperor of Persia, the king of Persia. But you know, the Lord used that event. And Mordecai said to her one day, he said, how do you know this isn't the very reason that you're in that office? Right. You know, we've just had an edict passed to destroy our whole nation, our whole race, and our whole family. How do you know you're not in that office just for this day? Now, you get busy. And she said, if you'll get busy praying and fasting, I'll get busy praying and fasting. And the third day, I'll go into the king. And she did. And we see good coming out of that because the nation was preserved by what would have been a rather traumatic event when Esther was, when Esther was ripped out of her house and taken to be thrown into a harem of the Persian king. But the Lord took care of her all the way through it. You know, look at what David says about the afflictions in his life. Psalm 119. I know that, I know that there are a number in this room, quite a few, that would be able to turn right to these verses because they have learned to rely on them. And they have learned to appreciate them. Psalm 119, under Teth. That's verse 65 through 72. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. If affliction causes you to stop going astray and helps you keep God's word, is that good? Amen. That's good. Verse 71, it is, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Some of us were talking even this morning about our sickness. Not even necessarily chastening, just being sick. It reminds us of our serious mortality. Another brother spoke up and said, it reminds us of our serious weakness. Because it shows us both. When we get sick from these little tiny microorganisms or whatever they are, and it knocks us flat. It reminds us that we are very frail and that we are not going to last. And so we better trust in a God that is eternal and inhabits eternity and is our Father and our Savior. David said in verse 71, It is good that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. 
Then we go to verse 75. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Those three verses are good. And those are three verses you might want to learn in your Bible. They're in Psalm 119, and they're right close together. And you can highlight them together and tie them together. But those are three good reminders about the goodness that comes out of afflictions in our lives. David saw that. You know, Paul has already shown, in, back there in chapter 5 of Romans, look back at it with me please, that there is spiritual good that comes out of afflictions. Esther had natural good come out of her affliction of being stolen from home and thrown into a harem. Now the Lord worked out things well that Ahasuerus loved her. <laughs> then she got to live as a queen. You know, there's good, there's a happy ending to that story too. She lived happily ever after as the queen of Persia. Uh, it doesn't say that quite, but it just leaves us with that. You know, Nehemiah seemed to like the fact that when he went in before the king as the cupbearer and he was unhappy one day and he thought he was going to get his head cut off, the Holy Spirit wants us to know in parentheses the queen was sitting beside him. <laughs> that helps. When you're Nehemiah and Esther is sitting there, the queen was beside him. In parentheses. There's natural good. Then there's spiritual good. Look at this that comes out of afflictions and trials. Verse 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. And I preached on this for quite a few minutes or hours when we were in Romans chapter 5. Look at that progression that starts from tribulations. Without tribulations, you can't get to the unashamed status of having such hope and confidence in God that you're unmoved. You gain experience and you learn patience by tribulations. And without them, you can't learn those things. When you say, Lord, teach me patience, I tell you what, I can tell you what He's going to bring into your life. Tribulations. Because that's the only way to learn patience. Because what is patience? It is cheerfully enduring negative events. So when you say, I want more patience, well, he's got to bring negative events into your life for you to learn it. And this tells us that those things that are working together for good, the things of suffering in the context of Romans 8, are bringing about this spiritual good. James would say the same thing. When James wrote in James 1-2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. Same two writers, one author, same doctrine. Right. There's a spiritual good that comes out of those things. You know, there's another spiritual good that comes out of tribulation. The Apostle Paul was a master at this one. It's another spiritual good. When evil things would happen to Paul, it gave him an opportunity to be like Christ. And he said that over and over. He wanted to be conformable to the sufferings of his Savior. You can't be conformable to the sufferings of your Savior Unless you have some sufferings. And so all things are working together for good. God is arranging them. They're never too much. Does the Bible say there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man? But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. That is God working together all things for your good. It will never be too much. If you think it's too much, you've left the Lord. You're no longer trusting His words. You're no longer believing. You, you've, you've got weak. 
And you need to go to your knees and ask the Lord to give you strength again. And by His Spirit and His Word, He is able. The apostle had some serious tribulations. When the Lord tells you that in tribulations, when I make you weak, and you can still be cheerful when you're weak, then I'm showing my strength through you, because you wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. And some of you do it, and I i know I couldn't do it. So Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Look at the rather glory. Rather than resenting, let me, let me use some words, a thorn in the flesh. Hey, have you ever had a thorn under your skin where it's, it's festered and it hurts? I mean, if you just touch it or you rub it with clothes. Sorry. <laughs> you get mad at yourself. Um, and you've got a thorn in the flesh. Is that what Paul had in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Is he called a messenger of Satan? What's Satan's names? What is he good at? Destruction. What is the word that is used that starts with B of how it affected him? Buffeting. Buffeting. Being hit, smacked, pummeled. A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And I asked the Lord three times if it might depart from me. But the Lord said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. We don't know what that thing was. You know, I've hypothecated with you that he, he had a crooked back and he, he had to spend the rest of his life. It doesn't, the Bible does not tell us. It does not tell us it was poor eyesight, as some people think. But the Apostle Paul had something that was buffeting him, and he begged God three times to take it away. And the Lord said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. When you can bear this thing and show a cheerful Christian life, and spirit through it, you magnify and glorify me. We want to be like our brother. And we are not like our brother all the time. But we want to be like our brother. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, is that good? Is that good? The Apostle Paul got to bring glory to God and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ by the buffeting in his life taking it cheerfully. He did that. And if you don't have anything buffeting you right now, all you have to do is wonder when. You don't have to wonder if. Just wonder when. In this world, ye shall have tribulations. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John 16.33 Jesus would teach us. You know, when we're chastened, and afflictions come in, and can God do all these things at one time with one event? Oh, yes, easily. When we're chastened for our sins, the Bible tells us that our fathers in the flesh did it for their pleasure. But the Bible tells us that when God does it, He does it for our profit, our good. So all these different things are how afflictions and trials and tribulations can turn to our natural good, Our spiritual good? The glory of Christ? The example of others? Job. We started with Job 5.11. And anyone listening to this sermon, you should go read Job 5.11, then you should read Psalm 107 so that you can catch up to us. Then you can go to Romans 8.28 and listen to this explanation of it.
Job. Can you think of any good that came out of the trials of Job? Did, was Job in perils? Was Job in tribulations? Was Job in trouble? Was Job tried? Did Job have afflictions? Did Job have suffering? Did he have all those things? Like no other. But think about it with me. I, I've had so much fun thinking about Job just from this standpoint. Did God work all things together for good for Job? Amen. Because if we can, if we can prove that God worked all things together for good for Job, we can argue from the greater to the lesser that He's certainly going to do it for us because none of us are going to be the next Job. When you come to me and tell me everything's falling apart in my life, I, some of you have heard this before, and I'm sorry. There's only one Job. <laughs> There's only one Job. Your life isn't as bad as Job's. You haven't had the messengers arrive in short order like they did in Job 1 and 2 and tell him all that was happening. Think, think about this with me. Did any good come out of Job's trials? How about the glory of God? Is Does that book lift up the glory of God? Yes, it does. We go there for the glory of God. We want to see God boasting of His greatness and His dealings with Job and His creation, the horse, the ostrich, behemoth and creatures and rain and ice and snow, winds, lightning. We see His glory. Um, how about exposing His wife's folly? That was some good. Mrs. Job didn't respond well in Job chapter 2. And Job got to tell her she was acting like a foolish woman. That's good. Her faults were exposed by Job's trials, and he got to correct her because she was wrong. How about Job's instruction? Did he learn about God? Did he learn God is greater than man? Five words in Job 33.12 that are the answer to the whole book. The whole book is answered. Job 33 verse 12. God is greater than man. Job, God has a right to do this to you. And it's, it's stated as the answer to the book. So he got instruction. Did his friends get some instruction? Oh, yes. So his friends got some instruction, some spiritual advice that they were wrong in falsely accusing and charging Job. Did he do okay naturally? What was the return in his portfolio that year? 100%. Because he had everything doubled. He had a book of the Bible written that was named after him. Do you think that's decently good? Was it an opportunity for Elihu to show that aged men are not always wise and that by the inspiration of God, even young men can have an answer? It gave Elihu a wonderful opportunity. Is it an example of God's pity? James 5.11 tells us that it is. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of Job, and you have seen the end of the Lord, that he is very pitiful. All those things came out of Job's trials. The Lord is able to work things for good, and if he can do it for Job, he can certainly do it for us. My brethren, Romans 8.28 says it's for them that love God. If you are living a carnal existence, befriending the world, then you're the enemy of God because you're committing spiritual adultery against Him. James 4.4 4 says that. The adulterers and adulteresses. James was not writing to a hundred Jewish churches 
containing the 12 tribes as members throughout the Roman world, accusing them all of literal adultery. He was writing to them, and he explains it in the second half of the verse, about spiritual adultery. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If you have are no, love, no longer loving God like you should and you're loving this world, you're the enemy of God. It is that simple. I don't make things simpler than the Bible does. I don't make them harder than the Bible does. But this is what the Bible says. And if you're the enemy of God, this verse doesn't apply to you. And you need to examine yourself and confess your sin. And or I need to examine myself and confess my sin. And together, we need to beg God and keep ourselves in the love of God and love Him once again. Right. Because then the verse is ours. Lot did not have all things working together for his good. Samson did not have all things working together for his good. Both of those men are in heaven because the Bible tells us so. Specifically, Samson is in Hebrews chapter 11 as someone who's in heaven because by faith he did a number of things. Lot is in heaven because in 2 Peter chapter 2, and he is described as a righteous man and a just man. Oh Lord, help us. Loving God is the first commandment. It must be done with all our being. Loving God is something you must keep yourself in. It is work to keep loving God like you should. It is the first commandment. Everything in your flesh loves this world. And the devil helps the two of them find each other. And so we've got to keep ourselves in the love of God so that Romans 8.28 is ours. If we even lose our first love, the Lord Jesus Christ will take away a candlestick from a church. And so I warn you from this text. I comfort you that He's able to work things together for good when you're loving God like He did for Job. And that is one terrible list of things that happened to Job. And it turned out wonderful for him. Spiritually, eternally, naturally, family-wise. Everything. His children were well, were well known and respected in the earth. They're beautiful daughters. Tremendous growth in his portfolio. But he loved God. And God knew that about him. Right. Because God started that book off by bragging about my servant Job to the greatest accuser of the brethren that has ever been in the world. The devil himself. Are you worthy of God boasting and bragging about you as he did Job? What we need to do is confess our sins and keep ourselves in the love of God, like Jude one twenty one tells us to. Otherwise, don't use Romans 8.28 and don't memorize it. It's not for you. Love God and choose to love Him. It's a commandment. And it, it, it's the most balming thing you can ever do for your soul. And it's the most preserving thing you can ever do for your life. Is to love God. Those that love God are also called those who are the called. What does it mean to be called of God? It means God chose and appointed you as child. When we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, Paul took a market survey, the Holy Spirit took a market survey for Paul and explained to Paul. Let's look at it. I can quote it to you, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there's enough verses there that I want you to see it. What does it mean to be called? If I say to you that there's some in here who have their calling as programmers, what does that mean? What's your vocation? 
That's the word call. It's another word that's a synonym for calling. Your vocation. What were you given ability for and what were you put in and charged to do? What is your calling? What is your vocation? You know, when it comes to these things, our calling and vocation are the elect of God, the children of God, the saints of God, called to be saints. What does that mean? That we were chosen to be a saint. That we were appointed to live like saints. That we were ordained to be the saints of God in God's determinate counsel. Here is an example that I've shown you before, but to me is most helpful. Verse 22 about the preaching of the gospel. The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. There's the market survey and its results. The Jews want miracles. The Greeks want sophisticated instruction, wisdom, earthly wisdom. Verse 23, but we don't give either market segment what they want. We preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews who are looking for miracles, it's a stumbling block. Unto the Greeks who are looking for sophisticated intellectual instruction, it's foolishness. Verse 24, but unto them which are called, and there's the called from Romans 8:28, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The preaching of the cross is to Jews a stumbling block, it is to Greeks foolishness, but is but it is to those that are called of God the wisdom and power of God. What makes the difference in the response to the gospel? One thinks it's a stumbling block. I can't believe that. That's not worthy of the Jewish nation to have a poor carpenter's son hanging on a cross. It's a stumbling block. The Greeks don't want to hear it because to hear about Jesus of Nazareth doesn't titillate their intellects. But those that are called of God, it's the wisdom of God and the power of God to save me. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, so he overcomes the Greeks, and the weakness of God is greater than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world. The calling is God's choosing an appointment and ordination for you to be such and such, and it is to be a son of God. It includes... His appointment of you. It includes His adoption of you. It includes His regeneration of you. It's making you into a son of God to be called. And we're the called. The ones in Romans 8 and verse 28. The Lord calls us by the gospel. But this isn't the call of the gospel. Watch this verse. Matthew 22, 14. For many are called... But few are chosen. The call of the gospel aren't in Romans 8.28. It's those that are chosen that are in Romans 8.28. And chosen is calling because you can see in this context of 1 Corinthians 1, that's part of it. Paul would say in one place, called to be an apostle. He would say in another place, appointed to be an apostle. Called to be an apostle, ordained to be an apostle. Those are the words that we can learn by just studying the New Testament to find out what it means to be called. It means to be ordained or appointed to an end, and our end is the sons of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to get more into this calling in the next two verses because there it is listed as one of the links in the golden chain of salvation. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Make sure that you're living up to the vocation that you've been called to. You may have been called in this life to do something naturally, but this is something spiritually. And it's to be the dear children of God, because look at verse 5, look at 5-1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, because that's what we've been called to be. That's our vocation. What is our, what is our vocation in life? The sons of God. That is the context of Romans chapter 8. We're the called of God. Called to be saints? Called to be sons. Ordained to it, appointed to it, adopted to it, regenerated to it, and then we are called by the gospel to it. Listen to my favorite text about thank, being thankful for our salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel. The Thessalonians were called to believe the truth by the preaching of the gospel from the Apostle Paul. But what caused them to believe the preaching of the gospel by the Apostle Paul? God had chosen them to that salvation from the beginning, and it started off with sanctification of the Spirit. There is a gospel call, but the gospel calls not in Romans 8.28, because what's in Romans 8.28 comes before the gospel call, or the gospel call has no effect. And it's to be chosen and called to be the sons of God and to be saints. You know, the text does not say one thing about to them who are calling, or to them who have called. It's to the called. Passive. The parties in Romans 8.28 are passive in this calling because it's God's appointment of them to salvation and to be His sons. It's His authoritative call and appointment, ordination and regeneration to be His sons. The gospel call must follow that call. Many are called to the gospel, but only a few are chosen according to His purpose. It's by God's purpose that you were ever called to be a son of God. It's not by your purpose to be a son of God. It's by God's purpose to have you as his son, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. According to his own purpose and grace, God saved us and called us. The infirmity of the mind but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There's a, there's a salvation and a holy calling that is according to God's purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but it's made manifest by the coming of Jesus Christ into the world and the preaching of the gospel, which brings that life and immortality to light. The salvation is all of God according to His purpose and grace, just like Romans 8.28. The knowledge about it is by the preaching of the gospel, which brings it to light. It brings that life and immortality that was given to us here by God's purpose to light. So in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. It's God's purpose that has saved us, set us aside, made us His children. And when we're loving Him like we should, like obedient children, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. 
All things work together for good because our Father in Heaven is coordinating all those things in our lives. Those things being the infirmities, trials, and tribulations that come our way. Persecutions and distresses. Whatever they might be, He's able to work them to good. So we have three things to fall back upon as Christians. God's going to change everything very shortly and glorify us with a glory that cannot be compared to these sufferings. Two, the Holy Spirit is praying for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, enhancing and blessing our praying efforts to help us through our infirmities as well. And three, we know at all times, while we're looking for eternal glory, while we're praying and the Spirit is helping our praying, we have a foundation for our souls. Everything's working together for good. That's what the text is there for. And because it ends with, to those, to them who are the called according to his purpose, the next 12 verses are about his purpose and what his calling had around it, like foreknowledge and predestination and justification and glorification. And he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Everything is going to work to the good of God's elect. God called them. They proved their calling by loving him. My brethren, if the verse is for those that love God, What are you going to do about that right now? What am I going to do about that right now? If you've slipped and you love other things that are in competition with God, then confess and repent. If you've slipped and you don't love God like you have at other times, and you don't don't love Him with your first love, confess and repent. If God's Word is true, if this verse is true, then you're going to bear up under your afflictions by the grace of God. And you'll remember that Lot and Samson couldn't claim this text. And you'll remember that chastening for your sins may bring good in the long run, but it's not going to be very pleasant in the short run. The issue is, are we the called of God? You know the Bible tells you to examine yourselves, to see whether you're in the faith, and to make sure you're not a reprobate. Second Corinthians chapter 13. See, this idea, the Armenian idea of having this little decision to look back to that is not in the Bible. Right. It's always examine yourself. Not examine a decision, but examine yourself. Are you in the faith right now? Do you love God right now like you should? It is a commandment to love Him. He's given you the ability to love Him. Let's make sure we love Him. Then we can fall back on this wonderful axiom of our religion. We can hope for eternal glory that's coming soon. We can be thankful for the Spirit of God blessing and helping our praying. And we can know that everything that we're praying about is working together for our good. That's how the verses go together. I hope it's been helpful to you. I hope that no one in this church will ever blame God or charge God foolishly like Job did not do for the things that happen in your life, but that you will bless and praise His holy name and that in patience you'll be looking for the good that He's going to bring out of the most terrible of circumstances if you have confessed any sins or involvement in those circumstances. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.